Come on in. Grab a seat. Coffee line was probably a little shorter today. Glad that you all are here. We took an over-under bet of 80 people before service started. It's close. It's close. But I'm so glad you all are here. Uh, I feel like I haven't seen most of you in like a year. It's a, it's a new year. I saw you all. I'd like to thank every dad in the audience and at home for sending me that joke telepathically, which I knew it would hit so well at the beginning there. Uh, yeah, so I was supposed to preach this sermon last week. Uh, we canceled because it was gorgeous outside last week. Uh, no, I think we made the right call in the morning. It was supposed to be nasty, and it was nice by four, but hey, the Lord provides. So this was supposed to be a end-of-the-year sermon, and now it's a beginning-of-the-year sermon, but it worked out for us of having to adjust some things with Josh not feeling well. We're praying that he gets back on his feet soon, and, and we'll be back in Luke starting next week. Um, well, since this is the first church gathering of 2022, I did think we could take a little bit of time, reflect on where we've been and, and where we're going, and kind of the mindset and attitude and heart for us to have as we enter a new year. I think if we polled the congregation here and those at home as well, uh, most of us would say that the, the last 18 months has been some of the most difficult for them in their whole lives. Some more so than others, that they've actually had to deal with tragic loss of family, maybe of jobs, but certainly the, uh, the aspect of being displaced the way that we, we were has affected us mentally, physically, emotionally, and, and spiritually as well. Uh, the ongoing pandemic shook up our routines and habits in a major significant way. We went from, we were about to meet at Kelly Creek Elementary on March 15th, 2020. We canceled that Sunday because of COVID to then not gathering as a full body believers until over a year later. And even now it's just been in the last couple months that everybody who wants to be at church is finally coming back together. Uh, it's felt like we've been in the wilderness for a while. We recorded sermons to post is how we started things out down in our, our study downtown, the community room now. We've also had a name change. Wow, huge 18 months we've had. Uh, we met online with only those who needed to be there in person coming together. We then got to meet in a group of 25 and then a group of 50 and then a group of 25 again because everything changed. And then finally, uh, a little over nine months ago, we, we finally start to come here and gather in a larger group. But again, it's just in the last little bit of time that we've gotten to be together. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, distance 100% made the heart grow fonder. Um, for most of you. No, no, for all of you. It was like, a, it felt weird, especially growing up a Southern Baptist, to not be at a church every Sunday. There was something inside of me that didn't feel right, but I just missed being with all of you. I missed hearing us all praise God together side by side. I missed teaching our students I missed learning under Josh and then talking about the sermon after church in the lobby. I missed serving alongside you all, and I suspect most of you felt the same way. What this period taught me is that my relationship with God is certainly encouraged and strengthened by being together with all of you in community, but I know more than ever that what I really need is the gospel in my life daily to make it through the difficult times. That even when things are difficult and in some ways hopeless, which there were periods that it felt like that to me, the hope that comes from who God is, who God says I am, 
and what God has promised is able to overcome even those moments of longing to be together. And so I hope for you that while you desired to be together when we were apart, that you desired God all the more. And my prayer for us as we start this new year is that we are seen as a people who desire, trust, and are satisfied in God above all else. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, has a chapter titled, Following Hard After God. I really like that phrase, following hard after God. Tozer wrote this book in 1948, but I think it's just as relevant today as it was when he first published it. So in this book, after showing how Moses and and David and Paul and all the great hymn writers were thirsting more after God, he writes this, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. This is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy. It is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. Thus, the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject is crisply set aside. I don't use crisply enough in my vocab. The experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of Scripture, which would certainly have sounded strange to an Augustine, a Rutherford, or a Brainerd. So what Tozer's saying here, he's rejecting the false logic that says, if you found God in Christ, you don't need to seek him anymore. You've found what you've been searching for. I also reject that. I suspect you would reject that logic as well. The more that we know and understand God and what he's done for us, the more we should desire to pursue him with every fiber of our being. We cannot and should not be satisfied with saying, ah, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was six at VBS or after a period of rebellion in high school, and I'm not going to, going to hell, and that's all I need. I'm good to go. No, that, that's not enough. That's not what this is all about. Pastor Matthew Henry said, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. John Piper, in his great way of explaining things, he says this about this verse. He says Paul, Paul's aim was to make God-aholics out of everybody. Instead of being drunk on wine, you are drunk on God. What he means by that is that God is not a worthwhile one-time experience. He's addicting. He's something you need more and more and more of in your life. And the evidence that you have him is that you want more of him. Continuing to be apathetic and growing in a relationship with Christ and his grace is a sign of his grace not truly changing you at all. I want more of Christ in my life to continue to help me navigate this broken world and to uh, carry me on his words of hope and faithfulness when things seem out of control and off. So today, uh, I want us to look at a Psalm of David, and it sets an example for us of what it means to have a pure desire for God. So if you have your Bibles, you can start turning to Psalm 63 or get it booted up on your uh, Bible app there. We'll also have it up on the screen. But as you turn there, I want to give you a a quick explanation of what's happening, of what David's thinking about as he writes this psalm. So it says at the very beginning that David is out in the wilderness. It means he's not in a town. He is out 
in the boonies, in the desert. Uh, This is probably not the time of fleeing to the wilderness when King Saul was trying to kill him. Uh, That happens early on in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, But this is happening when David himself is king. Our our best hint of that comes when it says David is king and there are those who are speaking lies against him. So what this is pointing to is a time in David's life when he's fleeing to the wilderness to get away from his son Absalom, who has revolted against him as well as the kingdom. If you don't know or don't remember this story, David's son Absalom drives David out of Jerusalem, out of his palace, out of his capital, out of the place of worship for God, away from the temple, away from the courts of Zion, and out into the wilderness. And this is probably the occasion that David sings this psalm. So all of his support and his blessings of God seem to have been taken away from him. He's out here in the wilderness, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You can see in the title, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so it's in that setting that we get this beautiful psalm that comes from his heart, from from the mouth of David. Can any of you think back and identify much with David of what he might have been feeling of being away from the people of God and the place to come and worship him? But once again, uh, I think we see this often in David's life, God brings out the best of David in the worst of times. Few other passages match the uh, devotional emotions of this psalm And you could make a case that it's up there as one of David's most passionate psalms. So let's read Psalm 63, verses 1 through 11 together, and then we will break it down. David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So in this psalm, we see uh, David expresses to us his thirst for God, his satisfaction in God, and his trust in God. Verses 1 through 4 we see his thirst and desire expressed. In verses 5 and 7, David talks about how his satisfaction is finding God. And then your Bible probably puts it that 5 through 8 are together, but 8 through 11 makes a little more sense because we're getting that idea of my soul at the beginning of it. So in verses 8 through 11, we see David affirm his trust in God. So let's talk about the beginning here. What do you thirst for? I want to put us a little bit more in the shoes of David as he says these words. So David has been reigning as king in Jerusalem for many years at this point. He's been extraordinarily blessed by God. He becomes the greatest king that Israel has ever had until Jesus finally comes as as king overall, returns in his kingly position. But ever since David sinned with Bathsheba, which is when David, again, greatest king they've ever had, this is when David commits adultery with Bathsheba 
and then conspires to have her husband, Uriah, killed while in war. This is the best Israel had to offer. Well, since that sin, there have been some serious trials and consequences in David's life. After his sin with Bathsheba, David would have to face the horror of losing four children. In fact, it's through his children that David continues to face his greatest trials. Though he was forgiven by God, he's welcomed back into fellowship with God and, and receives God's mercy and has the joy of salvation restored. We see that in, in Psalm 51, a, a beautiful song of David crying out to God after sinning. There are still many tests, and this is one of the biggest ones that he ends up facing. So Absalom, one of David's own children, turns against him. He rallies some of the leading men of his kingdom against him, and David has to flee from Jerusalem. Absalom then takes some of David's concubines up to the rooftops of the palace and has relations with them. It's really a horrifying thought when you think about it, because if you think back to David's own lusting after Bathsheba on those rooftops, I can't imagine the heartbreak he must have felt as his own sins were playing out again through his rebellious son. And then he's driven out from the land. He's not the king on the throne anymore. And worse for David is not just that he's in the desert, not that he's been separated from his kingdom and his ruling power, it's that he's been separated from the worship of God, from the temple of God, from getting to praise him in God's house. And so it's there in the desert with his rebellious son reigning in Jerusalem that David sings the words of this song. Everything at this point has been kicked out from under David. Everything has gone wrong. All the blessings seem to have been lost, and it's in this circumstance that David says, verses 1 through 4, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. David is telling us that even after he has lost everything, the one thing he longs for is God. He thirsts for God. He desires God. What David wants, what David needs is just God. Now you think about it. If you had lost everything, what would be the thing that you want most? It really tells a lot about a person and how they respond to this kind of adversity, doesn't it? John Calvin makes an interesting comment. He says, there are some people who are religious on the exterior, but they lack a true knowledge, a true saving knowledge of God. And the closer they are to religious ceremonies, the more spiritual they feel, the more they seem to long after God. But remove them from those religious ceremonies and their zeal for God vanishes. I hope that wasn't what happened to you in the period of wilderness that we experienced. And I hope if we ever have to go through something like that again, which I pray we don't, that it's more than being together that matters. It's being with God that matters. Look at David. Look at his example. David is separated from the religious ceremonies of Jerusalem, and yet his heart still longs for God. It's a testimony to the reality of grace in, in David's life. He thirsts for God. Well, what is it you thirst for? What do you feel like satisfies you and helps you carry on through life? Is it your family, your job, your hobbies, your comfortable house? Is it just being at church on a Sunday? David's desire and relationship with God wasn't just tied to the temple. 
Look at how he expresses his desire for God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. These are such strong words that he's using. In the desert, he's physically parched. He needs water, but he's thirsting for God even more. David may be away from all the comforts of home, all the blessings of being the king, and even away from the people of God who he worships with in the temple. But he says, because he's already beheld God's power and glory, because he knows God's covenant love is better than life has to offer, what's David's response in the midst of chaos? Blessing and praising his God. This isn't a lamenting song. This is a song of praise to God, even in the middle of his circumstances. So David's example, it really forces a response in us. What are we after? What do we want? What do we thirst for? David says he wants God. What do we really want? Circumstances like David's, when, when you've lost everything, call out for an answer to that question. David, having lost everything, says, one thing I want is God. That's what desire looks like. That's what worship is about. Really, you worship the one thing that you really want. One pastor put it this way, worship is about saying, this person, this thing, this experience, this whatever is what matters most to me. It's of highest value in my life. That thing could be a relationship or a dream or a position or a status, something you own, a name, a job, an accomplishment, some kind of pleasure, whatever name you put on that thing, this thing is what you have concluded in your heart is what is worth most to you. And what is worth most to you is what you worship. So worship, in essence, is declaring what you value the most, what you desire most, what you thirst for when you're at the end of your rope. As a result, worship fuels all of our actions becomes the driving force of all that we do. Every person on the planet, whether they realize it or not, they worship something. Every soul is, on earth is proclaiming with every breath what is worthy of their affection, their attention, and their allegiance, proclaiming with every step what it is that they worship. Some of us, and I hope everyone in this room, will eventually come to this point. They claim to worship Jesus Christ above all. Others say, well, worship isn't a part of their lives. They, they aren't religious. But everybody has an altar, and every altar has a throne. So how do you know where and what is your worship? Well, it's easy. You follow the trail of your time and your affection and your energy and your money and your allegiance, and at the end of that trail, you're going to find a throne. And whatever, whoever's on that throne is what is of highest value to you. On, on that throne is what you thirst for. Now, not many of us would look around and say, I worship my stuff, or I worship my job, or I worship the Seahawks, why? Or I worship this pleasure, I worship him or her, or I worship my body, or I worship me. Like, that's probably not going to be a statement everybody, anybody's just going to come out and say, but the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than the other, but this is a circumstance where our actions do speak louder than our words. We worship what matters most to us. And David is telling us here, the thing that matters most to me, the thing that I want most is God. You can have my kingdom, you can have my throne, but what I want is God. I think his words are so important for us. Here he is in the worst of circumstances, and God brings out the best in David. And David expresses his thirst 
and desires for the living God. So when we stop and think what it is that we truly desire and thirst for, we then need to ask the next question, is what I thirst for able to satisfy me? So that, that's point two. Let's look at verses five through seven. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So David doesn't just desire God. He says here in verses 5 through 7 that he's satisfied in God. He not only longs for God, but he enjoys God. So if you think about what do we thirst for, that's what we're trying to figure out with the, what's your throne, your altar. David says he thirsts for God, but he's also satisfied in God. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You notice that contrast between verse 1 and verse 5? Verse 1, he says, my soul thirsts for you. But verse 5 says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So he longs for God on the one hand, but he's satisfied in God on the other. So he finds all of his longings met and more in God and God alone. And I think our problem is that we satisfy ourselves with too little. David is hungering and thirsting for God because he knows that only God can satisfy him. He can live with being spiritually hungry and thirsty now because he knows, as he says in verse 5, that one day his soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. His soul's hunger in the desert will be satisfied by a banquet beyond imagining. He knows that one day he will feast on God. And David won't let himself be satisfied with anything else, anything less than that. But we, unfortunately, we do try to satisfy ourselves with so much less. We settle for too little. We dull our hunger for God by turning to things which are not God. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, makes this observation. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. John Piper knows how to put things. It's no wonder our desire for God can become so weak if we're constantly changing it to things of the world. We find such significant, insignificant, tiny things to seek satisfaction of life in that sinful desires don't even need to have that tight of a grip on us. It's not the, the, the big sins that turn us away from being satisfied in God. It's our, our uh, wasted time and attention on reality TV shows and social media and fantasy sports and real sports. By the way, my fantasy teams are losing today if you're interested. And insert anything here that we seem to delight in more than our Savior and Lord. Psalm 37.4, one of my favorite verses says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, if our true desire should be the Lord and we delight ourselves or are satisfied in him, then our soul's thirst is quenched and our singing lips will praise him as it is for David in these verses. There are several forces that would seek to rob us of our desire for God. In the first place, there's sin, right? Our sinful desires will distort our desires and make us turn, them, uh, turn away from God. So instead of desiring God for his own sake, we find ourselves desiring status or, or power or comfort or security or pleasure or whatever. Not all wrong things in themselves, but very wrong when they are the goal themselves. 
If I desire security for its own sake, I am very concerned about my safety, my security, my family safety or whatever, rather than desiring security in God, well then that ends up becoming a sinful desire. It robs me of the desire for God because I'm more concerned about my security in the here and now. What's the antidote to sinful desire? God is my desire. In the second place, there's the world. As we look at the world around us, we see things that seem satisfying. A big house, beautiful garden, new speedboat, status at work, accomplishments in the church maybe, entertainment, expensive cars, academic achievements. And as we satisfy ourselves in things like these, rather than in God, our desire for God starts to become dulled. We care about what the world has to say to us, not what God has to say to us. Our Christian lives become static and apathetic. The antidote to being satisfied through the world is this, God is my satisfaction. We just celebrated Christmas last week, and I know for a lot of us in this room, it's a day that we've been looking forward to for a while. Some of you since school let out for for Christmas break, some since Thanksgiving, some of you since last year. I'm not in that camp, but I know some of you are like, Christmas music should be year-round. I think Josh Howarth is in that camp. Uh, Christmas is a great day of hope and joy as we get to hope for the thing that we really wanted. I hope you guys all got it. We joyfully spend time with family and, and enjoy that rest from just the regular rhythms of life. But guess what? Christmas is done. It's over. I don't know about you, but the trees packed up, the pine needles have been vacuumed up, the decorations are down. I do need to take the lights down at some point this week, but presents are unwrapped. It's done. It's over. There is no more Christmas at that point. Your hope in Christmas is gone, at least till next year. That's a long ways off though. So if you've been waiting for that day forever, this is it. Christmas is going to make things feel good right now. Well, now what are you putting your hope in? Last week may have been great, and I hope it was, but it can't truly satisfy us. It's here and gone. Well, David, as he's writing, he's lost everything, and yet he's still satisfied because he has God. Well, how is he able to do this? He says here that he spends time daily, or rather nightly, meditating on God, on how God has been with him through so much in life, of how God's wing, God doesn't actually have wings, God's wing has provided a hand of protection on him. David can be in the midst of deep thirst and longing for God and yet be satisfied at the same time because he knows that God is the only thing that truly brings satisfaction. By remembering where we've been, where God has been with us, and what he has saved us from, we praise him with joyful lips even when our soul is thirsty. When our minds are roaming freely in the watches of the night, how David puts it, our thoughts can turn easily and naturally to him. At night, David is waiting for the morning of deliverance because he knows God is with him. David is satisfied most in God because he knows God has a hand on him. There's this idea of security and protection, which is interesting because David's thinking that way because he's just been booted out of the palace and the kingdom and his army. You'd think his security and protection is gone, but it's not because it's through the Lord he's satisfied. So as we've seen, that other stuff doesn't matter because he's experienced love, which is better than life itself. Using another John Piper quote, I like this guy. He says, this is the authenticating inner essence of worship. He says, it's the essence of worship to be satisfied with Christ, to prize Christ, to cherish Christ, and to treasure Christ. 
This definition of the inner essence of worship encompasses all of life that flows from the heart. And he goes on. So in our worship services, what are we about? He puts it this way. Worship services are about going hard after God. When we say that what we do on Sunday mornings or evenings is go hard after God, we mean that we are going hard after satisfaction in God. We're going hard after God as our prize. We're going hard after God as our treasure, our soul food, our heart delight, our spirit's pleasure, or to put Christ in his rightful place. It means that we're going hard after all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Man, may we be people who go hard after God in the times that we do get to be together. Our time together isn't about what you get out of it. It's but you going hard after God and finding satisfaction in him. Well, what do we thirst for and do we find our satisfaction in God? We don't simply long for him, but we find our satisfaction in him. David is telling us that he's satisfied in God and David's own experience is a testimony to us. We should thirst for God. We should long for God more than anything else. And when we're satisfied in God, we enjoy God because we remember what he's done for us. And this leads us to want to glorify, serve, and desire him all the more. Eventually, we're going to experience the full satisfaction of God in the next life when we're united with him in his glory. But what do we do until then? That's a ways off. What do we do when we're in those periods of of deep thirst and maybe don't feel fully satisfied? Well, that's when we cling to God. We trust in God, our, our point three here. Let's read verses eight through 11. David closes saying, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, for all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And so David desires God, he's satisfied in God, but he also trusts in God, he says here. He says three things about his enemies. He says, they're going to the place of the dead, they're going to be slain in battle, and they're going to have their lying mouths stopped by the Lord. Now, from knowing the story, David doesn't have this audible assurance from God that this is going to happen, but he trusts in God and who God is. So David doesn't talk about in the psalm how he's going to regain his kingdom. He simply says, I trust God. I know God's going to take care of things. What do you cling to? When things go really bad, who do you trust or what do you trust in? Do you trust in in your own wisdom? Do you trust in the plan that you set out? Do you trust in someone else to get you out of it? Or do you trust in God? David trusts in God in this circumstance, and because he trusts in God, he's able to rejoice in God. He contrasts himself in verses 8 through 11 to those who are scheming against him. He says the king will rejoice in God. Why? Because David knows that the true king, the true power, is the God who David trusts in. He's seen this play out in his life over and over again. He knows that he's going to do it in this circumstance And so he's able to trust God. He longs for God. He desires for the right thing, the right person. He's satisfied in God. He's satisfied in the right person, and he trusts in God. And all of this springs out of his opening statement of this psalm. He starts with the cry, Oh God, you are my God. David's relationship with God is not abstract, it's personal. God's not an idea, he is a person. God is not somewhere out there for David. 
He's made God his own. You are my God, a God who is desirable, a God who is satisfactory, a God to put trust in. Well, David's God is our God. The glorious Father is our Father. And how much more clearly we seeing these things, uh, see these things that even David did is we have the full expression of God through Jesus Christ and the rest of the story in his holy word. Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my Savior. You won't always be satisfied in this life, but the promise of the gospel gives us something to cling and trust to in those times in the wilderness. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and I will give rest to your soul. In Matthew, in Matthew 11, in, in John seven thirty seven, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If, as we've seen from David, and we know from the rest of the Bible, that our thirst can only be satisfied in God, and our sin has separated us from God, then only Jesus can satisfy that thirst through trusting in him. Cling to that truth. Trust that Jesus is with us even in the wilderness, even when we are down, when we're separated from our brothers and sisters, when we can't worship in the church. We can still worship him with every fiber of who we are. We start a, a, new, a new year, a, a new road, new challenges, new obstacles this week. And my prayer for everyone in this room is that this next year you would thirst for Jesus and the good news of what he has done for you and who he says you are, that you would be satisfied with what he says and he gives to you, and you would cling to the promises that one day we shall exalt him in the heavenly temple we long to be together in. We're going to get to express our worship to God through the taking of communion in just a moment. And as we prepare our hearts for that, and uh, Josh Matthews will lead us in that, I'm going to pray for us so the praise team can come up to lead us in a song, and then uh, we'll take communion together and, and close out worshiping God together. But I really hope in these, these last few minutes we have together here, go hard after God right now. Find your satisfaction in who he is and what he's done for you. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, this has been a long, difficult period that we're maybe not out of the wilderness uh, yet on, even as we're missing a, a lot of our church family today who are, are struggling with um, their health. I, I pray you just would, would be with them and you're giving them strength. And even though I know that they're probably longing to be uh, here at service together with their brothers and sisters, that um, they are thirsting for you, they're satisfied in you, and they're trusting in you. God, as we start this new year, I know that this is a time of, of those new resolutions and things are going to be different. And um, God, I pray things would be different for us, that we would become a people who um, are known for our longing for you, uh, for, for going hard after you, for uh, finding our satisfaction in you. I pray that you would help us to um, just ignore the trivialities that this world has to offer us, the things that can't truly satisfy us, that we can't really find ultimate joy in, and, and that we just would be um, resting in your gospel daily of what you've done for us, what you've saved us from, the grace that you've given us, and that your grace for us will just make us desire your grace all the more. God, I pray that uh, as we prepare for a time of communion and a time of worship together, that our hearts would be united in the fact that we're here to praise you, 
We're here to worship you. It's not about what we're getting out of this. It's what we're bringing to the table right now for you. Um, and God, I pray as we, we, we leave this week that you're not just a, a Sunday, Sunday evening God for us, but that you're an everyday God for us. That as we meditate in the nights on you, as we long for the morning of what will come, uh, that our, our hearts are, are focused on you and who you are. So um, God, I pray you'd help um, our elders to continue to be strong leaders in that. You'd help our parents to be able to raise our kids in that in this church. You'd help us each individually um, to just find our satisfaction and our, our trust uh, to be in you. I pray these things through Jesus' name.